All right, Genesis chapter 24, that's where we're at this morning. If you guys are turning there, I'll take a moment to go over the announcements with you. Um, by the way, did, who, did you, if you were, just by a show of hand, who got an email from Livingstone Calvary Chapel this week? Okay, most of you. If you haven't checked your email yet and you think the church has it, please do. There's some information in there. That's uh, something that we're going to try to do a little bit more often this year. And some of you guys are probably going, oh, great. I get enough spam as it is. Please don't put us in your spam box. <laughs> um, we want to try to stay more connected as a fellowship just in what God's doing. And um, in addition to that, I'm going to be sending out some devotional stuff through that email. Um, uh, hopefully uh, a, a, a couple, three times, maybe a month, and just some encouragement involved in all that. And so if you don't think the church has your email address, just write that down and give it to the people at the information counter if you wish to be connected and, and more in touch with what's going on. We have an, some new software that allows us to be able to stay better connected and keeping you guys better informed. But in the bulletin, if you look there, the church direction and appreciation dinner, we do that annually as we just look forward to um, this upcoming year, we do it with a dinner, and um, we break down the sanctuary set up tables. The elders have an opportunity to stand in front of you also and just kind of speak some encouraging words and some things that God's put on their hearts for, for the upcoming year. And um, it's going to be February 12th, Sunday evening at 6 p.m., and... Um, Please sign up uh, at the, uh, in, the, in the foyer area there where the information counter is at so that we can get an accurate uh, amount of who's attending so we can get you know, some, the right amount of food for everybody too. Um, I guess the men's, man, men's fantasy football, I, I didn't even know we were doing men's fantasy football. <laughs> uh, Bill, we have something else in common. I guess Bill and I are the losers of our leagues, so I hear there's a special award for us, though, Bill. I'm sure it's an award with encouragement and love in, in its tone. <laughs> Maybe not, but January 21st, it's, it's, it says it's going to be here at the church. It's not. It's going to be at 310 Main Street at the Bridge Youth Center. They, they changed that up because they want... If you, what? No, I'm not embarrassed. And you and me, Mr. Moore, will have a talk later on about that. Um, but pizza will be provided. And even if you weren't a part of the fantasy football, guys, it's really a men's evening to hang out. Um, we got a really cool new pool table down there for the youth and for us, apparently, now at the, at the bridge, along some other things. So it's going to be a time of fellowship, awards, and, and eating food. So guys, please come to that um, and... and um, if you're not a part of the fantasy football, you can join in with others like Eric and make fun of Bill and I. So, financial peace, Scott and Robin starts this Tuesday, right? This coming Tuesday. Uh, I know there's at least 10 or 11 couples signed up for that. Um, uh, if you still wish to be a part of it, you can. You can order your materials online. Just let Scott and Robin know you're coming. And home groups are starting up. Uh, the, the groups have been divided. The leaders have been chosen. The books have been picked. Um, and so your leaders, if you've signed up for that, have all of your contact information. They will be getting a hold of you this week to let you know where you're going and what night it is going to be. I think it's all going to be Sunday nights at 6 and when it's going to be starting up for home groups. So with that, Genesis chapter 24. 
get up my notes opened up here. And I want to start off by reading to you um, from Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, <coughs> verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. I love those verses. But I will admit to you that um, as cool and as hope-giving and encouraging is that proverb is, the fact is it can be really difficult. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, to lean not on your own understanding, and to acknowledge God in all your ways. But there's this really cool promise attached to it, right? And, and ultimately, I think that proverb is talking about humility and complete surrender to God. And, and not reliant on self in any other way or in any way at all, but completely reliant upon God in every way for everything. And I wanted to read this proverb to you before we begin chapter 24 in our study through the book of Genesis, because that promise in that proverb for, uh, from God to, to direct our path as we trust in him, lean not on our own understanding and acknowledge him in all our, our ways, that these things are really illustrated in great deal for us in chapter 24. As Abraham, we see Abraham put his trust in God and um, sends his servant, who, by the way, does a lot of trusting in God on his own as well, all in order to acquire a wife for Isaac. And if you remember when we studied a couple weeks ago through chapter 23, which records the death of, 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 of and burial of Abraham's wife, Sarah, at that time I briefly mentioned to you that this chapter um, uh, is unique. And um, I pointed out that in comparison to the other significant events in the book of Genesis that we've read and studied through up to this point, um, like the creation account, kind of important, uh, the fall of man and how everything that God had made perfect had become corrupted. That's a pretty important uh, account in, in telling. But also of God's judgment with a global flood. You know, there's, there's these other significant important events in the book of Genesis that we've been studying through. And as we've been given details about all those things, and we now look at this chapter here, and we see the details that are given about Isaac and his bride, what we'll notice and as we go through it is, is that the details given here are significantly greater than all these other events that we've read about up to this point. And in light of this, I think we should first consider why. And I challenged you guys a couple of weeks ago to look into that, to, to, to see why that is the case, that God, the Holy Spirit, would spend so much time on this. And even though there are more than two reasons for why, and I'm sure you guys have come up with, with great reasons for why, I do want to point out to you two. Two that I believe are, are, are to be the most applicable reasons for our lives, uh, for why there's so much attention and detail given to this event. And, and I want to start with the fact that this chapter emphasizes the importance of separation, the importance of separation. In other words, we'll read how Abraham, as we go through this, we're going to read how Abraham made it very clear to his servant um, 
that, that his son was not to marry a Canaanite woman. And in doing so, Abraham made his servant even swear an oath. It's kind of a weird thing. You're gonna, he's going to stick his hand under his thigh, you know, and um, that's obviously a cultural thing. Don't do that today. It's weird. <laughs> but <laughs> you can just swear an oath if you want to swear an oath. You don't have to put your hand under another person's thigh. But they, they do this thing, and, and Abraham lays out these conditions, and, and, and it all centers around who Isaac's bride is supposed to be and who she's not supposed to be. And um, Abraham, in doing that, said that, that he told his servants, only get a bride from my country, my homeland, and from my family. And when we consider this, you see that it's going to be no easy task considering the servant had to travel by camel for more than 900 miles round trip to complete this task. And, 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 and by estimates of people that I've read and studied as I've gone through this, that would have been, at the very least, a two-month journey there and back, at the very least. It was probably much longer than that. But 900 miles on the back of a camel for two months to complete this task. And certainly there were other eligible women, so to speak, closer by, right? But there was a reason for this. And, and by this, we see how important it was for Isaac, Isaac's bride to have been from the same country and from the same family that Abraham was from, as Abraham set out these, these conditions. And, and we should also see, because of that, how important it is for us as believers, as the children of God, more importantly, as we look at this as the bride of Christ, how important it is for us to choose our own relationships in a godly way. Because that's what Abraham was doing. He was choosing Isaac's bride with godly conditions for right reasons. And, and, and we need to do the same in our relationships. Being set apart, it says, Scripture teaches us as believers, set apart unto God. Set apart. Holy, the Bible says. Not only that, as it says we're called to be set apart unto God, we're called to be, un, not, we're, we're told that we're not to be unequally yoked, Right? It says, with those who don't share, here's the key, our citizenship and our family connection, right? Citizens of the, of the kingdom of God and, 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 and brothers and sisters, family members as, as those who have been adopted as sons and daughters into the, the, to God's family. We're of one family. We're of one family country, so to speak, a heavenly citizenship. And we see this really cool connection in regards to the emphasis of separation that we read in this chapter. It's one of the reasons for why such detail is given here in these events as it applies to our life. Now, in addition to the emphasis of separation, the other important reason for why so much detail I see is given to this story of really, look, if you just want to break it down to its base level, it's really a story of how one man got his wife. And, and so much detail is given to this because this account paints a picture for us. There's a lot of spiritual illustration and representation here. And it paints a, an awesome picture for us of how our Heavenly Father has sent the Holy Spirit to acquire a bride for His Son, His only begotten and beloved Son, Jesus. And as I read through this, as I read through this chapter, I will challenge you. I will challenge you to see if you can pick out these comparisons between Abraham sending his servant to bring a bride back for his son and how our Heavenly Father has sent his Holy Spirit 
to acquire, prepare, and present a bride, we, the Bible says, who are the church, who make up the church, to his son Jesus. And, 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 and I want to add a little subnote to that as we, as we get ready to read verses 1 on through 28 to begin with. Guys, the Bible clearly tells us that we as believers are waiting for two significant things. You know what you're waiting for? You're waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back and get us, his bride, so that we can participate in a marriage, our marriage. The Bible refers to it as the marriage feast of the Lamb. And it's going to take place in heaven, and the Bible says that it's going to last for seven years. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're waiting forward to with hopeful expectation. And like I shared a couple of weeks ago, as we begin to see these events unfold, biblical, prophetical things unfold in the Middle East and Syria with Russia and, and Turkey and some other things that are going on, guys, look upward. Because the Bible is clear in telling us that when these things come to pass, that our redemption our salvation, that day when the Lord calls us up to be with him and we're wed to him, that time is drawing near. It's clear. And we're looking forward to those things. This chapter illustrates that connection, that relationship that we have with Jesus. And the work that the Holy Spirit's doing right now of preparing a bride for God's Son, Jesus Christ. Let's read together in verse 1 of chapter 24. It says, Now, when Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to his oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, and possibly this was Eleazar, the man who had read about you know, uh, uh, many chapters ago. He said, Please put your hand under my thigh. Weird. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and, all, and, and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. And that's a, that's a very reasonable concern. And so his conclusion to that potential problem, he says, must I take your son back to the land from which you came? In other words, he's asking Abraham, hey, have you thought about this? Maybe I could take Isaac with me. But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. And the Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, and from the land of my family, whom, and, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants, I give this land. So Abraham's answering him with what God had promised as an explanation for why Isaac should not go back. And he says, he will send his angel before you, this God who's made these promises. He says, don't worry. He says, he will send his angel before you, and you should take a wife for my son from there. And complete confidence we read here really in Abraham's, you know, command and, and, and investment in sending the servant to acquire a, a bride for Isaac. And in verse 8 it says, and if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his mother's or ten of his master's camels and departed, 
for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Verse 11, and he made his camels kneel down outside of the city of a outside the city by a well at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have sworn kindness to my master. And it happened, verse 15, before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, wow, what a coincidence, came out with her pitcher on her shoulders, on her shoulder. Now, the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And, verse 17, the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water and drew for all of her camels. And the man, wondering at her, which was a good response at that point because he was probably in a little bit of shock and awe of what had just happened the moment he had just prayed for it to happen, right? Um, have you ever had that happen, by the way? It'd be like in the middle of a prayer and all of a sudden you open your eyes and God's answering it. It's like that kind of, psh, that's happened to me a few times and it's, it's pretty mind-blowing when that happens. It's just like you stand there in awe, just can't even speak. And, and, and that's kind of the, the, the thing here. The man, he's wandering at her, and he remains silent as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was when the camels, verse 22, had finished drinking, that the man took, off, or took, took a golden nose ring weighing about a half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels of gold and said, whose daughter are you? Because remember, there's other conditions here, other requirements. Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. And at this point, this guy's mind had to just like be exploding, because I know mine would have at this point as well. And moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. What an awesome response. And, and that's an example for us, guys. When, when, when God blows our mind, which is pretty much on a daily basis if you're in a right relationship with him, you know what? The response is to worship, to worship, to bow yourself. And he said in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of the master of Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's house 
hold these things. Let's pray. Father, I pray now, Lord, that you would speak um, to us. God, we know that your word is truth. It's your word, and it's been handed down um, with complete accuracy, Father, for us to, to read and study and to know. And God, within this, these passages, there are so many things that apply to our lives. And God, we recognize and acknowledge that, that your word, this book, is living and alive and is sharper than any two-edged sword. So Father, we call upon you in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to do a work in our lives and penetrate your truth into our hearts, into our lives. Meet us where we're at, Father. Um, reveal more of, of your will and of your son, Jesus, to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you look back to the beginning of these verses, I want to point out that this chapter as a whole, and we'll read through the rest of it here a little bit later on, but this, this, as we look at this chapter and we first consider it, we must also consider it as the historical account that it is and look at it in that light. And when we look at it as, as a historical account, we go, well, what, historically, what, are, what is God wanting us to see here? And, and we know that this is, these are, these, what's, what's being told to us is another piece of the puzzle of God's overall plan to save mankind. Because we know that there are some promises made to, to Abraham and the promise of a savior that would come down through his descendants. And, 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 and we see this, these things pulling together. But as we look at this and we see this as a fulfillment of God's will, of God's plan that had been made known to Abraham and how God said that Abraham was going to be a part of this, that his descendants were going to be a part of his plan down through time, what we see here as we look at this historically is we can see the faith of Abraham once again being put into practice. Guys, and that's such a cool thing because, you know, as Abraham's described in the book of Hebrews as a man of faith, right, in that, in that hall of faith there, uh, many specific references are spoken to why he has earned that title where he looks as and can be referred to even as the father of faith. And, and it's not just because he had a hope in the things that God had spoken to him. It's because he had a, a hope and a faith that was put into action. Abraham stepped forward. He did things. And, 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 and again, Abraham's faith was being put into practice. We saw that last week with the burial of his wife in a specific tomb, in a specific field that had a specific geographical or, 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 or it had a specific it had, it, I'll just put this, you said, you guys, we talked about it. It was, a, it was a tomb that had, it was a cave that had two doors. It's called Machpelah. And, and there's this great spiritual representation of how death for the believer is not the end. There's a way in and a way out through Jesus Christ. And, 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 and so Abraham was putting his faith into practice as he purchased this tomb, this cave. We have looked back and we saw it many times over, you know, with circumcision and, and, the, and, the, and, and him entering into that covenant with God and, and, and uh, allowing for that to be a testimony to himself and to others around him that, that God's made these promises and this is where we're going to stand. I'm going to take action. And then even with Isaac, when God said, hey, your, your son whom you love, I want you to go sacrifice him. And, and Abraham put that into action. And again, we see his faith being put into practice, into action. In other words, God had made promises to Abraham. And at this point, Isaac was not only the fruit of that promise, but he was the future hope. He was the future hope of these promises that God had made, specifically the promise to make Abraham's descendants a great nation 
who would, as he said, become as great as the sands of the, sea sh- of the seashore, and a nation who would bless all other nations upon the earth, right? But in order for this to, to happen, what had to happen? Isaac had to have a, a wife. And not just any wife. For this woman, his wife, this woman who would become Isaac's wife, would not only become a co-inheritor, right? We have to remember the big picture here. This woman who would become Isaac's wife would become a co-inheritor of these promises of God. Therefore, it was important who she was. She, with her husband Isaac, furthermore, would be this crucial living link in the chain of blessing that would culminate in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So whatever was to happen to Isaac was of great importance in God's plan. And Abraham, being a man of faith, knew this. He knew this, and this is first revealed by the fact that Abraham, if you look there in verse 3, he makes his servant swear an oath by, he says, the Lord, specifically the God of heaven and the God of earth, to do exactly as he was instructed to do when choosing Isaac's future wife trusting in God. And this faith that Abraham exampled through this process regarding the acquisition of this wife for Isaac is further revealed to us in verse 7 when Abraham went on to assure his servant that everything would be okay because his God, the one who had called him out and made these promises to him, would handle this situation as well, that he would send his angel before this servant and make it so that he could take the right wife for his son, the right woman who would be a co-inheritor of the promises that God had set forth, the right woman who would be this living link in the chain and the descendants and the ancestries of Jesus Christ, the bigger plan. And as I look at this, the first thing that I see here in, in relationship to a cool thing that applies to our life, and the cool thing about Abraham's example of faith is that his confidence, you can, do you not get that feeling as you read through this? I mean, Abraham has great assurance in this, great confidence, so much so that it's like the servant saw, well, I'm glad you're confident, but have you thought about this? You know, this potential problem, and, and, and it's, it's almost like Abraham, he feels like Abraham's so confident that he's not gone into it with his eyes open, right? But remember, Abraham didn't walk by sight, he walked by faith. In his sight, his eyes were on God. And, 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 and yet this confidence that he had, we see that this confidence is what moved him to, into action, that moved him into to an action um, um, when, and when so much was unknown, right? There was much that was unknown. And not only was much not known, there was much that was out of his control. His servant could have just like went and had a two-month vacation, went to the land of the Philistines, which was just a short distance away. Matter of fact, it was on the sea. He could have had a beachside vacation, picked out a woman, and brought her back and said, here you are. Much was out of Abraham's physical control. And yet this example of faith and the confidence that he had that moved him to into this, this place of taking action when so much was unknown, when so much was out of control, we see that it was ultimately rooted in something of substance. It wasn't a blind faith. It wasn't just a hopeful expectation. 
His faith, which moved him to action and gave him this great confidence, was rooted in something, in substance. And what was that? It was rooted in the promises that God had made. That's what he references. Not only in the promises that God had made, but he references back, not forward, but he references back to the God who had brought him out, right? In other words, he was looking back to the past faithfulness of God. The past faithfulness of God to do what he said he would do. Likewise, our faith in God is rooted in substance. The faith that we have in God is rooted in substance. And whenever we face times of uncertainty, when there is so much that is unknown to us, when there is so much that is out of our control, guys, we can move forward with the same kind of confidence that Abraham expresses here, that Abraham had as we look to the promises of God, the promises that he has made us as well as look back on God's past faithfulness to us since we've given our lives to him. Now, like I previously mentioned, this chapter goes beyond this historical account. And into, the word that we might use here is into uh, theology. And, and really what I mean by that is, is it, it gives us this picture of God the Father obtaining or getting a bride for his only begotten son. There's a picture of that here for us. There's a, a spiritual illustration, a representation that, that we can look at and apply to our own lives. And when we look to passages like Matthew chapter 22 in the New Testament where Jesus spoke a parable and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. When we look at passages like that and the words of Christ like that, we begin to see this connection in relationship to us being the bride of Christ and what took place here with these events. In addition to that, when we look to passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and Ephesians chapter 5, where we read how the Holy Spirit, or, or where we read how the church is compared to a bride, we again see the connection. And, and then in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, it specifically tells us that the Holy Spirit is calling people to trust in Jesus and to be, quote unquote, married to Him. And these things are important to take note of because the elements that are involved in this account, this historical account that we read of, of, of Isaac and Rebecca's marriage, you know, these same events, they're also involved in our relationship with Christ, in our marriage with Jesus to the church. In light of this, the first thing I want to point out is that just like Abraham was, just like it was Abraham's will for Isaac to marry, did you know that it's also the will of God for his son to be married? This is all taking place in our lives today, and this connection and relationship that we have and will have in a greater level with Christ is because it's the will of God the Father. It's part of his divine plan. And as we, as we, as we, as we consider this, and as we look into this chapter with this thing in mind, we will see two specific commands that were given by Abraham. The will of the Father. Two specific commands connected to that as he prepared the servants to go and get a wife for his son Isaac. The first is here in verses 3 and 4. 
when he said, do not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, but go back to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Guys, because of this, we can conclude that Abraham was concerned. He was concerned with Isaac becoming one of the Canaanite people, one with the Canaanite people. And this would have been in regards to a national identity as well as a spiritual identity. Considering the people of Canaan worshipped all kinds of false gods. But because God was rising up a new nation through Abraham and through his descendants, a promise that was given to him, a nation who would worship him alone, the God of the heaven and the God of the earth, It was important, therefore, for Isaac's wife to not be a Canaanite. In fact, this principle would be a standard that God would expect from all of Abraham's descendants. Something that he would require them to adhere to. And when we consider the history of Israel and their disobedience to God's will, what was God's will? That's what we're looking at through this in relationship to Isaac and his bride. And when we look at the nation of Israel's historical disobedience to God's will in this area, we can read both in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah how the hearts of Israel were eventually turned away from God, right? And given over to the idols and false gods of the Canaanite people. Why? Because they took wives from them. And for this spiritual adultery, we know historically that God allowed for his people, the nation of Israel, those who would worship him alone, he allowed for them to be carried away, carried out of the promised land and taken as captives. First by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. So so when we look at the bigger picture here and we consider, guys, our own relationship with Jesus in light of Abraham's instruction here to his servant, it should point us to this New Testament admonition or warning that we must be willing to apply to our own lives. And understand that just like it was a big deal for Abraham to send his servant 900 miles round trip on, on camelback, more, than, more than, than two months' journey, understand that this same kind of separation that God expects in our lives sometimes is a hard thing to do. It's a challenge. It's a temptation to not compromise in this area. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, it says this. It says, this famous passage of Scripture, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But where people often stop there, they should continue because God gives us a detailed explanation for why. He, 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 he considers this with us. He sits down and, and rationalizes it out with us. And he says, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Anybody want to answer that? I think the answer is nothing. Or he says, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And we know that there's none. When the light turns on, the darkness what? Flees. He says, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Literally worthlessness. What does a believer have, therefore, in common with an unbeliever? Hopefully, guys, 
nothing, but the sad truth is, is there's still a lot, but that doesn't mean we make way for it. We make exception. We don't compromise in, the, in that area. He says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And, he's, and, and just in case we didn't get that, he says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. He says, therefore, as a result of these things, as a result of that that admonition, that warning to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he says, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will, God's will, you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Remember, it was the prophet Amos who had said in chapter 3, verse 3, asking this question, he said, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Have you ever been in an in, in, in argument with your spouse? And like on a walk? <laughs> if you were holding hands, you know what you're not doing anymore? You're not holding hands. And maybe your wife or your husband is like two or three steps ahead of you. You know? You can't walk together unless you're agreed. And I know that there's this, this I'm not just referring to the, the physical things there that we're talking about. Obviously, there's this spiritual implication behind this question. And certainly, the answer to the question is no. Two cannot walk together if they are not agreed, if they're not like-minded. And, and when we who are followers of Jesus choose to be bound to an unbeliever, you know what takes place? Always ungodly compromises. Always, every time, in every way. They will have to be made in order to walk together with somebody who's not like-minded with you, that you're not in agreement with. Why? Because you have to have some kind of agreement. In order to have those agreements, you compromise. And even when we're considering these truths in the context of marriage, it's important for us to see that they should be applied to many areas of our lives. To our friendships. Now let me get that. Let me clarify that. I've, we've always taught our kids that you can be friendly to those who are unbelievers, but there's a difference between being friendly and having someone as your friend, as your confidant, someone who shares your heart with you. There's a difference. The same I would say is true in regards to business relationships. Be careful who you tie yourself together to. The Bible says it's important and it's exampled for in this just in this chapter now the second command that abraham gave to his servant if you look here it's in verse six he says he said beware that you do not take my son back there do not take my son back there and um what he was referring to specifically is the land that god had called him out of don't take my son back to the land that god had called me and my descendants out of and Abraham gave this command because he knew that when God called him out from the, from the land of Ur, from the city of Nahor, where his father was at, when God called him out there, he knew that there was no going back. He knew. He and his descendants had been promised this new land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And, and, and that is where he was to remain. As a matter of fact, we look back through this historical account in the life of Abraham, and we see that there was a time when he did leave that land. And he went down to Egypt, as he said, we're told, and we know that it didn't go so well for him in the view of God, from God's point of view. It wasn't where he was supposed to be. 
And Abraham learned his lesson. He knew where God would have him. He knew what God had promised to him. And he knew where he and his descendants were to be. And this is an important thing also for us to consider because when we made our decision, guys, when we made our decision to put our faith in God and to follow after his son Jesus, the Bible tells us that we too were called out. We too were called out. Specifically, the Bible says that place that we were called out from and that life that we were called out from, it says that we were never supposed to go back to it. In fact, the Bible compares that place and that other life that we are so tempted to go back to at times as a place of darkness and a place of death. Ooh, I want to go back. I mean, when we think about it on that level, we go, no, duh, why would I ever want to go back? Especially in contrast, this place that we've been called into, the Bible says, is a place of light and a place of life. And even though it makes no sense to go back, we are often warned against it because we're tempted. And Jesus, speaking figuratively about this very thing, said in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, he said, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Those are strong words. This is a serious matter. Furthermore, the writer of Hebrews is talking about our need to endure and to continue in this new life of faith because that's how we go on. It's a journey of faith. It's a life lived in faith. And the book of Hebrews dealing about this and moving forward in this new life of faith without drawing back to our old ways of doing things. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is you and I, before we came to put our faith and trust in God, we had faith. But we put our faith in other things. Right? For giving us maybe hope or peace or joy or contentment or, or whatever. We had faith. We had it in just something other than God. And so on the grand scale that the writer of Hebrews says, don't go back. Don't go back. And speaking about this, about not drawing back, he said in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 39, he starts off and he says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence. What an awesome way of starting that because truly we have confidence. What are we seeing here with Abraham? What is the exhibit here? Confidence. Assurance. He says, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. Yes, we do. So that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Faith in action. He says, yet for a little while, speaking about this endurance, because he who is coming will come and not tarry. And when you hear that, your heart should jump with joy and you should go, yes, amen, he's coming. Because he's coming. So he goes on and he says, now the just shall live by faith. Right? We know that. The just shall live by faith. But then he says, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But I love what the author of Hebrews says, what he declares. He says, we're not of those. We're not, that's not us. Come on, guys, that's not us. We're not those who draw back to perdition, to that old life of, of death and darkness. But we're of those who believe to the saving of our soul. Now this last instruction Abraham gave to his servants is found in verse 8. Where he said, if you'll look there, he says in verse 8, if, this whim, if, the, if the woman is not willing to follow, then you will be released from your, your oath that you made by sliding your hand under my thigh. 
And when we consider the spiritual aspect of this, okay, into the theology side of it, not just the historical account of it, when we consider the spiritual aspect of this as it relates to our own lives as believers, what we need to see is, is we should see, as I was asking you to kind of pick out some of the comparisons and connections here, you should see that the Holy Spirit, excuse me, that this, this servant is really a picture of the Holy Spirit. He's a picture of the Holy Spirit. And in light of this, Abraham's instruction reminds us that the Holy Spirit will not force anyone to become the bride of Christ. You see, it's a choice we're called to make of our own free will. Nevertheless, just like Abraham's will was for Isaac to have a wife or to have a bride, so too is, is God's will to provide a bride for his beloved son. I don't know about you, but it just blows my mind. And when we take God's will and, and, and look at it in light of this free will aspect that's being demonstrated to us or illustrated to us here that we know applies to our own lives. And when we take these things and consider literally I free will in light of God's free will, it helps us understand why God wanted us to be his gift for his son. See, God, God said, I'm going to give my son a gift and I'm going to give him uh, you. And some of us might be thinking, well, that's not a very good gift. <laughs> You know, I, I, could, I could think if I was the God of all the universe and I could create anything that I wanted, you know, I, I, might, I might go, God, you could give Jesus a little better gift than me. And it, it might be really weird for us to think of that because of that, but also because of this, this whole God giving his son a gift thing. And it, it may be hard for us to understand why God would do this, and especially in light of this because we know that Jesus doesn't need a bride. See, for me, I needed a wife. I was one of those guys, I'm not supposed to be single. I needed a wife. God knew this. And he gave me a wife. Jesus doesn't need a wife. He being self-existent is also self-sufficient. Paul makes that really clear. He's need nothing. But yet, God's seen this and he wanted to do this. It was his will. And rather, we... As the bride, when we look at this, we got to understand that it's not out of need. It's not out of need. It's because it's out of love. We are the Father's love gift to his son. What a cool thing. And this may also seem strange to us, considering we usually emphasize the fact that, that Jesus is the Father's gift, love gift to the world, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That's usually our mindset. But when we look at this and the spiritual connection and knowing who we are and we flip that, 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 that coin, if you will, and look at it, we go, we go, not only did God give his son as a gift to the world, but God has redeemed us and given us as a gift to his son. And the fact of the matter is, is that we as the church, the bride of Christ, we are the Father's love gift to the Son. You know, and this was a fact that Jesus himself acknowledged many times in John, chapter 9, in John chapter 17. In that chapter, Jesus is praying for his disciples as he prepared to make his final trip to Jerusalem before being crucified on the cross. And in his prayer, he acknowledged that we... Jesus is, those who would believe in Jesus and be saved by him, his disciples, then and on down that we were given to him. And Jesus makes all these cool statements. He said, hey, those you've given to me, I'm not going to lose any. 
You know, go back and read that and look at that chapter, that prayer of Christ in light of this. It's wonderful. It's enlightening. Let's go on. In, chapter, in verse 10, it says, Then it says this servant, with all this information, with all these commands, with all this assurance, with the confidence of Abraham placed into his heart, he said, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels, and he departed from all of his, he departed for all of his master's goods were in his hands, and he rose and went to Mesopotamia near the city of Nahor. So having received this instruction and having sworn this oath in verse 9 to do as commanded, the servant then headed out to the city of Naor with 10 of his master's camels. And even though we know that he knew where he was going, it's apparent that he had no clue how he was going to get or find the right lady. Yet we see that like Abraham, this servant trusted in God. And so in verse 12, if you look there, we read that he prayed. He prayed to the God of Abraham, asking for God to fulfill a certain set of circumstances in order to determine which woman would be the right one for Isaac as a wife. And the truth is, this is something I think that all of us have probably done at one time or another, another in order that we might also be able to know what God's will is. God, I don't know for sure if you want me to go do this thing, but if you want me to go do this thing, you know, I want you to you just do this and do that and, and do this. Or, you know, have you ever done that? Yeah. I think, I think that's pretty common. We want to know God's will. We want to have that assurance. And and, and um, we see this guy doing this. In fact, mother, there are many other times in the Bible where, we're, where, where men of God, godly men, good men, ask for a sign to know or to have that assurance of God's will. I think of 1 Samuel chapter 14 with Jonathan and his armor bearer, right? That Jonathan wanted to go and battle the Philistines. And his father, Saul, he was, he was, he was afraid and he was down in the camp. So Jonathan just like wanders out of the camp with his armor bearer. And he goes, well, I'll just take them all on myself. And they're up on this mountaintop, and he's got a geographical disadvantage, and, and him and his armor bearer, his armor bearer is just an awesome picture of, of, of servitude and faithfulness, and he's all, hey, Jonathan, whatever God puts in your heart, let's go do it. And so they start to climb up this mountain, and Jonathan says, hey, listen, if, if, if they call down to us and say this thing, then we'll know that God's given us favor, and basically we'll, be, we'll just lop off all their heads. And, 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 and he puts forth this certain test regarding what the Philistines would say in order to determine if the, the, the Lord was going to give that whole army into his hands. And we know that's what happened. In addition to this, there is perhaps the most known kind of sign asking in order to determine, determine God's will. The most known person to set up a test in order to determine God's will is a man by the name of Gideon, right? You guys have heard of Gideon. And this account is recorded in Judges chapter 6. And, and in that chapter, Gideon had been called by God, and it makes these, it gives us kind of this uh, context as you read through there saying that, that Gideon was from the least of all the tribes of Israel. He was not like this great warrior by any means. And so, so he had doubts that God would actually do what he said he was going to do, and God had called Gideon to go and battle against the Midianites and save Israel out of their hands. You know, and Gideon's kind of looking around going... Are, are you sure it's me, God? There's probably about 999,000 other better choices than me. You know, and we've all felt that way at times, right? Are you sure me, God? You want, you want me? I mean, can you confirm this? With an angel from the sky writing on the wall, you know? And, and the problem was, is even though Gideon had been commanded by God, he still doubted that it was really God speaking to him. God had spoken to him, and he's, he's like, is that you, God? 
Certainly it's not you telling me to do this thing. And so what he did is he asked God for a sign. And, and we know that God gave him a sign. And even after God gave him that sign, Gideon still doubted. And that's when Gideon decided, I'm going to make a test of my own. Because God said, I'll give you a sign, and this is what I'll do. And, said, and God did that, and then Gideon's, okay, that's, that's pretty weird. Uh, I think it's you, but let me devise a test of my own. And we know that he took a, 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 a wool fleece into his threshing floor, and, and he, he was really asking God to do a miraculous thing with it. More than once, by the way, in order to receive the assurance that he needed that it was God's will for him to go and attack the Midianites. And even though Gideon's test, uh, uh, even though Gideon tested God's patience in this, because Gideon's all, Lord, don't be angry with me, but in, in, you know, we've all kind of had that kind of conversation as well. But we know in the end, Gideon was obedient. That's the key. He was obedient. And God, as a result, gave him a mighty victory. Guys, listen, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, this is maybe a little bit more obscure, obscure but it's a really cool passage of Scripture that kind of connects it all together. It says in verse 33 of Proverbs 16, it says, People cast lots to learn the will of God. People cast lots to determine God's will, to learn God's will. But... It says, God himself determines the answer. In other words, even though we may ask God for a sign, understand he's no way and obligated to ask us in a way that we have predetermined. And with that being said, I don't want you to think that I believe it's, it's, it's not okay to ask God for a sign. In fact, I believe that, that God does give us signs and he answers those requests of ours. The Bible says that he knows that we are but flesh. He knows our makeup. He understands our weaknesses. And he shows us and he reveals to us all kinds of signs to lead us and to assure us that he's in control. That it's okay, just like a good father does. However, guys, there does come a time when asking for a sign is really a demonstration of unbelief. It's only unbelief. An unbelief that leads to disobedience. Always. We must be careful. So we must be careful to not allow for our unbelief and the asking for a sign to keep us from what God has revealed to us. So it's okay. See, God, show me a sign. You know, a lot of people in Christian go, well, should Gideon have done that? Should, you know, all these things. But it's, it's okay if you're willing to go, okay, God, show me, and I'm going to go do it. Do it. Faith in action. But in all of that, you guys, we have to keep this in mind. This is important because you and I, we live in a very privileged time, so to speak, historically, in relationship to God interacting with man. Do we not? And this is what I mean. We live in a very privileged time considering we have the written word of God. You want to know what God's will is? Start here. You know, some people are like, God doesn't speak to me. It's like, open your Bible and read it. Everything there is God speaking to you. He doesn't leave anything unspoken. It's here. In addition to that, if you're going, well, I read it and I don't understand it, I hear God speaking to me, we have another privileged thing for us here in this time that we live in, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of us. We have the complete Word of God, and we have His Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Bible says to lead us, to guide us into all truth, and into God's will for our life, for any and every situation that we may face. It's a really cool thing. So in verse 15, if we read on, it says, And it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out, of her, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And, and um, I don't know about you, but every time I read that, it's like the, 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 that, that old TV show, The Twilight Zone. 
It's like, doo 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 doo. It's like, oh, I always hear that in the background. And, and um, it's kind of an eerie thing when, when God moves in these kinds of ways. And after praying to God and asking for a sign, we're told that even before Abraham's servant had finished speaking, Rebecca showed up at the well. And by her actions, it was re- many things were revealed. By her actions, it was revealed to her servant that she was gracious, that she was kind, and that she was hardworking. But more importantly, it, 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 it had become apparent that this woman was the one that God had chosen. Yet, if you look down a little further in verse 21, we see that the servant wasn't going to jump to any conclusions because there was still these other requirements, this requirement of needing to be from Abraham's family. And so it says he remained silent in verse 21 to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous. Waiting on the Lord. That's part of faith. Don't rush ahead of God. And just a side note regarding the watering of the camels. First of all, we're told that there are 10 of them. And so I did a little research. These things are interesting to me. I came to find out that a camel can easily consume, one camel, 30 gallons of water at one time. That's like normal. That's not even like if they're thirsty. And so this means that Rebecca must have drawn somewhere around 300 gallons of water. And so what she did was not an easy thing. Not only was it not an easy thing, guys, it wasn't the normal thing. Okay, it was normal for the women to come out and come to the well at this particular time. But beyond that, it was abnormal. It was difficult. But when she had finished, the servant must have felt pretty confident that God had led him to the right woman because we see that the next thing he does is he takes the gifts, the gifts that he prepared, and he asked her this question, a very important question. Whose daughter are you? And this is when it became clear that this is the right woman and that everything had fallen into its perfect place. Guys, in Proverbs 19, or 6, verse 19, 16, verse 9, the last one's correct. Chapter 16, verse 9, it says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Guys, we should have great confidence, because there's times when we are like, I think this is the way God wants me to go, and I'm going to go. You know, and, 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 and people somehow think that if we do that and we're going out in faith and in confidence and really seeking God, that somehow if we, we step to the right a little bit or the left a little bit, that God's going to allow us to fall off of this cliff, figuratively speaking, right? And then he's going to look down and you're like, dummy, I, that's not the way. Guys, we, we, we have plans in our heart. And if we're for the Lord and wanting the Lord's will, even if we get astray, we can rest assured that the Lord is the one that directs the steps, We see that made evident here. And it's easy to see how God had directed the steps of Abraham's servant and how God was the only one who could have made every one of these things come to pass. And when the servant realized that Rebekah was the one that God had chosen for Isaac, we read that he gave her the nose ring and the two bracelets made of gold as a gift to adorn her beauty. And the giving of these gifts illustrate, I think, for us one last picture of for this morning of the work of the Holy Spirit. As we know that God, our Father, through the Holy Spirit, it tells us, through the Holy Spirit, the servant gives gifts to all of us. 
spiritual gifts. And it's in Ephesians chapter 4 where we read that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given as which we usually focus on. It tells us they're, that they're given to equip us for ministry. But if you read in that passage of Scripture, we see that the, these gifts are also given as an adornment for the bride of Christ. As these gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit work in our lives to transform us into a thing of beauty, into the very likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's all more I'm going to get today. Justin and Rich and Cindy, if you guys want to come up for one last song. Closing, I want to point out that the historical count, this entire whole historical count makes it clear that God had chosen Rebecca for Isaac. Guys, I want you to read the rest of this chapter on your own and, and finish it off. Because it's clear that God had chosen Rebekah from Isaac. And as Abraham and his servants trusted in God, God led them each step of the way. Yet what we see in the last part of this chapter is that it's clear that Rebekah still had to make her choice to become Isaac's wife. She had a choice in this matter as well. And in the same manner, we know from passages of Scripture like 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we know that it's God's will for all men to be saved, for all men to be wed, and men and women alike to be wed to his son Jesus. Yet it's clear that each person must choose Jesus for themselves. And when it comes to the decision, this particular decision in life, there is no greater one a person can make. For this decision is the one that has the greatest influence in shaping our life for all eternity. There's a quote I came across by a man by the name of Reverend, Franklin, Reverend Frank Borum. He was an 18th century Australian-born Baptist preacher and an author who wrote more than 55 books. And he has a book called Mushrooms on the Moor. And in this book, he says this about decisions. And I love this in light of what we see in regards to the decision that Rebecca made and what it meant for her for the rest of her life and her own relationship with God. He said, we make our decisions and then our decisions turn around and make us. We make our decisions and our decisions turn around and make us. And from that very moment that Rebecca chose to leave her home saying, I will go with them and go to Abraham's, go with Abraham's servant in order to become the bride of Isaac. You know what? Everything changed. She was under that special providential care of God and now was a part, an active part in the thrilling plan that God would bring in regards to the salvation of the whole world. That's you and I. We've been brought under God's providential care because of the decision that we made, and we've become a part of his greater plan to save all of mankind. Father, we thank you, God, for this life that you've called us to, for these words of encouragement and warning and instruction and even correction, Lord. I pray, God, that we would honor you by going forward in faith and in action and, and having confidence, Lord, in who you are to us and your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, why don't you stand? We'll worship the Lord together.